0: Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of the New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here.
1: We should not be expecting patients to fit into our preconceived agenda. Patients bring their own agenda. You know, why when we do psychedelic studies, do we have pictures of the Buddha and sitar music playing and incense sticks? Why those things? There's no need for those things, those stereotypical 60s Eastern mysticism. Most of my patients are hard, tracksuit wearing, lager drinking, cigarette smoking, tattooed, shaven headed, deeply broken people okay? Deeply broken people who need psychedelics. And they would run a mile if I talked to them about energy levels and chakras and put sitar music on. Why do we have those stereotypes? We should be meeting the patients where they are. Why a picture of the Buddha on the wall? Maybe they want a picture of Man United on the wall or a picture of Britney Spears on the wall. Why not?
0: Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Cup Show. What if some people undergoing psychedelic assisted therapy rather have a picture of Manchester United or Britney Spears on a wall instead of a Buddha or yoga poses? Is this a question of class, power, objects, and a different idea of spirituality? This is my favorite topic in the episode with Dr. Ben Sessa today. Ben Sessa is a consultant psychiatrist, psychedelic therapist, and chief medical officer at Awaken Life Sciences, UK's first on the high street provider of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Awaken is researching, developing, and delivering evidence-based psychedelic medicine to treat addiction and other mental health conditions, and is aiming to open 15 to 20 clinics across the UK and Europe in the next 12 months. Patients will be able to self-refer or be referred by their GP, including NHS. Ben focuses on MDMA-assisted therapies, since the substance is further along in research and legal processes than psilocybin. Though in the meantime, Ben and his team also work with Ketamine as a therapy tool. The need for psychedelic-assisted therapy seems higher than ever ben tells me 30 to 40 percent of the british population is drinking in a harmful bracket now in the last 12 months of the pandemic we also talk about rather different ways of using psychedelics like ketamine for addiction mdma for obesity or psilocybin for anorexia something ben as a fan of creative psychopharmacology is very much interested in We also address what happens if depression and SSRIs can become your identity and how you might be able to get rid of your own old stories about yourself with the support of the right psychedelic-assisted therapy. Please enjoy the show and Dr. Ben Sessa. All right. So thanks for being on the show again. A year ago, it was pretty much a year ago, we did this the first time. Let's start with this huge article I just read recently on, on The Guardian regarding interviewing you about the clinic that has just opened. Maybe we start how I mean, of course it must feel amazing anyway, but but how is this gonna work now? How is this gonna let's say if you're a patient coming in, maybe you can talk a little bit about the opening and how this whole structure is going to look like? I mean, it must be a a big step forward for you guys now, right? Yeah.
1: So since I last spoke to you, Mm -hmm. I've now set up this company, Awaken Life Sciences, which is a biotech Mm -hmm. company, which is providing a number of different services across a number of different platforms. One of the things we have is a psychedelic assisted psychedelic therapy center. Um, We've opened our first physical bricks and mortar building in Bristol and we are opening one in London shortly, and then Manchester in the UK, with the plan to open 15 to 20 such centres throughout the UK and Europe in the next five years. So um, very much our role is to be a physical delivery centre, a platform for providing psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. You know, there's many startups in the world at the moment, as we know, in this sphere, most of which are kind of Pharma type companies, biotech companies, designing new molecules, that kind of thing, providing psychedelic therapy training. We have very few competitors in our sphere who are actually opening physical clinics. So that's very mm-hmm. much our USP is opening high street physical presences for the delivery of psychedelic therapies. Um, we're starting with ketamine assisted psychedelic psychotherapy, um, because, as you know, ketamine is the only current licensed psychedelic drug. It's not licensed for psychotherapy. It's being used off license Ketamine is licensed as an anesthetic, but we are using it off license as a tool to assist psychotherapy. And this is very important. There are lots of ketamine clinics which use intravenous-infused ketamine solely as an antidepressant with little or no psychotherapy in, in 99% of cases. They just deliver the drug, and then it starts to work as an antidepressant. We are going to be using ketamine in the same way as one might use MDMA or psilocybin. We are going to work within the ketamine psychedelic space and around the drug sessions with non-drug assisted psychotherapy, using it as a tool to assist psychotherapy. So, So we stand apart from most ketamine clinics in that respect. We also stand apart in terms of the psychiatric indications we're providing it for. It's not just treatment resistant depression. We're going to be using ketamine-assisted psychedelic therapy to treat anxiety disorders, PTSD, eating disorders, and addictions. Myself and co-therapist Laurie Higbed are both trained and approved MDMA and psilocybin psychotherapists. So we're going to be using ketamine in the same way as we might use those compounds to assist psychotherapy. So that's one of the things we're doing at Awaken Life Sciences: are the, the ketamine treatments. The other thing we're doing is research. We have a Superb scientific advisory board. Um, I would go so far as to say the best in the world, bar none, with uh, Professor Celia Morgan, who's the national lead on ketamine therapy, David mm-hmm. Nutt, who is the chair, Professor Nutt, um, myself, and, and Annie and Michael Mithofer, who are the pioneers of MDMA assisted mm-hmm. psychotherapy. So we have a superb scientific underpinning. And we have behind us our recent MDMA for alcoholism study, the BEMA study that was published a few months ago. And also Celia Morgan's published studies in ketamine assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of alcoholism. So a big part of our research going forward is going to be developing psychedelic assisted psychotherapies as treatments for alcoholism with the aim to get those licensed and approved in the next few years. So similarly to what Max are doing in uh, getting MDMA for PTSD licensed, we're now on that journey to expand MDMA towards treating alcoholism. We're also, um, like many others in the space, we're starting research into new molecule development, looking at novel analogues of psychedelics that could have clinical benefits. So that's another area that we're expanding into. And we are also developing psychedelic training for therapists to become licensed psychedelic therapists. Hmm. And that's uh, another a piece of the work that we're developing at the moment. And alongside all that is, we're designing a digital platform for collecting data um, in order to drive and inform clinical practice using creative digital means of data collection in terms of uh, progress and effects of psychedelic treatments. So it's a, it's a very broad company with many different arms. I'm the chief medical officer, and. My main interest really is in developing the clinical programs with the ketamine clinics, the physical clinics. But of course, involved in all of those those other research aspects as well.
0: I mean, but when you say it's a similar way that you do ketamine therapy as MDMA, meaning that are there two psychiatrists or therapists leading the person through the experience? Or is it because this typical setup that MAPS or other people... MDMA studies have that there's mostly like a man and a woman kind of guiding the person through the experience?
1: When we start out, we're going to be doing two to one psychotherapy with myself and Lori as male, female co-therapists, but we quickly want mm-hmm. to move away from that model towards one-to-one psychotherapy. So a single yeah. clinician would have their own caseload and they would, uh, be involved in in all of the non-drug and drug sessions with a patient. So it'll just be one-to-one psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. which makes more sense economically um, and makes it more clinically deliverable.
0: Okay. And after this article came out, I was wondering, so I mean, of course, you must have had like uh, many requests and people trying to get in touch with you and then booking appointments. But could you talk a little bit about how the let's say, I'm not going to say the target group, but how this group of people looked like that were addressing you? Because I feel that, let's say, in the last couple of months, there were so many articles, especially in and one could even say like lifestyle magazines like Vogue and Elle and I mean, all these titles, especially about ketamine therapy as a possibility also to treat something or things that come up in COVID where people can't go anywhere, but have to stay in their country, like a whole younger generation is also very interested in these therapies. But it would be curious, like who's coming to you and who's getting in touch with you?
1: So we had um, 500 people sign up um, when we launched. Wow. Um, And we haven't started clinically yet. We're hoping to start in the next few weeks in terms of actually starting treatments And at the moment, we're in the process of just sifting through that huge waiting list. And obviously, there is a fairly rigid and robust eligibility criterion that needs to be reached in terms of suitability for treatment. As I said, the target psychiatric indications go beyond just depression. And that's something of a unique aspect. Um, I mean, there are a few, there are a few, a handful of ketamine-assisted psychedelic therapy centers around the world. There's none in the UK or Europe. Um, But the vast majority, 99% of the ketamine clinics, are not psychotherapy services. They are treatments for depression as an antidepressant with an intravenous infusion. Mm -hmm. So we sort of stand out in that respect. And we also stand out in terms of the broadness of the psychiatric indications. So the sort of people who are signing up, are fitting into the because all, all of these details are on our website. The sort of people who are signing up are a wide range of different things depression, anxiety, eating disorders, binge eating disorder, obesity, anorexia nervosa, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, um, post traumatic stress disorder, and addictions to multiple different substances. So, a very broad range of psychiatric indications.
0: But do you feel that addiction has become a bigger problem or is it just becoming more visible right now?
1: Um, it's a very broad question because all mental health issues are becoming either a bigger problem or both and
0: are being more
1: readily recognized. So that's a very Mm. big question. The extent to which humanity is becoming more mentally unwell, or is it just that we're becoming better at recognizing it and people are coming forward where before they would keep it to themselves and continue to behave in dysfunctional ways, um, but not access treatment. Um, one way or the other, it's quite clear that there's a massive need for new, innovative, safe, and effective approaches to tackling mental disorders of all kinds. In terms of your question about addictions, yeah, I mean, when it comes to drinking, um, broadly, sort of two main problems with with problem drinking. There's dependence upon alcohol, with heavy daily use of alcohol, which it involves a physical dependence syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that's about between 2 and 6% of the UK population suffer with that. And then there's a much, much bigger group for what we call harmful drinkers. So these are people who don't necessarily have physical dependence, but they're drinking more than the 14 units a week. That's the maximum recommendation. And they're having some degree of psychosocial dysfunction as a result of their excessive drinking. Now, that group has always been large. It was about 24 to 25% of the UK population pre-COVID. Now, the data that's starting to come in of the last 12 months through lockdown um, is that number has risen substantially to probably closer to 30 to 40 percent of the UK population are now drinking in that harmful bracket. So we are looking at a huge epidemic of alcoholism that lies ahead, many of whom will go on to become daily dependent drinkers. So there's a real clinical need to tackle addictions post-COVID. So this is a good time to be bringing in these innovative new approaches.
0: Okay. And have you experienced by yourself like a ketamine treatment? You went through it to see how it feels like?
1: I've not experienced a formal legal ketamine treatment. There has not been any mechanism for that in the UK. And really, that's where we've really got stuck in terms of COVID. It's something we very much hoped to do as part of our training, but... Um, There's nowhere in the UK that provides that. There is a clinic in Barcelona that provides that. And there's a mechanism for a clinic in Oslo that provides that, but we've been unable to travel. So we haven't had the opportunity to have formal, legal ketamine experiential training prior to opening the clinic, which is regrettable, but there's simply nothing we can do about that.
0: No, no, sure. But I mean, I was wondering um, in terms of legal questions... Do you think that the Brexit might be even accelerate the developments in the UK in terms of the rest of the European Union, like that you guys would actually have an advantage in a way that it goes faster because there's less people to be involved in this decision?
1: Who knows what the implications of Brexit are going to be for Mm -hmm. the research community in the UK. I'm not so doom and gloom as to think that there will not be a psychopharmacology research community in the UK. We have an awful lot of talent and experience in the UK, world leading in psychopharmacology research, and it will continue. Um, In terms of how Brexit is going to impact on regulations, I don't know. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't seem to be impacting now. There will always be mechanisms for us to continue with drug development and psychopharmacology research pre or post Brexit. So, I haven't noticed any particular impediments due to Brexit, uh, nor any particular improvements. It seems to be business as usual.
0: But I mean, it's. I, I just thought that the vaccine goes so much faster <laughs> in the UK. And I was like, oh, maybe other things will go faster too. So, but I mean, I feel in the last couple of months, like let's say the topic of ketamine is becoming... Bigger and bigger, and and, uh, people seem to explore it also more. More companies and everything. So, can you talk a little bit about how, let's say, a therapy session would look like that you're planning to do?
1: So, what we're offering is a nine-week course of psychotherapy, which involves weekly sessions with a psychotherapist, in which the patient will take ketamine on four occasions, spaced between non-drug sessions. So, um, you know, a pretty broadly similar protocol to all psychedelic therapy interventions. You know, all psychedelic therapy has a similar structure. It's not just taking the drug. You have non drug preparation sessions, then you have drug sessions, followed by non drug integration sessions. So the total course is nine weeks, and there are four occasions in which they take ketamine. Uh, it's 11 psychotherapy sessions in all, um, over the nine weeks, four with ketamine. And the, All of the sessions are outpatient sessions. No, the patient doesn't stay in overnight. We deliver the ketamine intramuscularly like a vaccine. Um, We're not going down the route of intravenous ketamine. Mm -hmm. So the ketamine, all of the non-drug sessions are one hour face-to-face, one-to-one outpatient psychotherapy sessions. The ketamine session is two hours um, when it's delivered intramuscularly. Um, And then after the ketamine session, the patient will remain in the center for a couple of hours until they're fit to go home. So there's a recovery period after the drug session. Like most psychedelic therapy protocols, the majority of the talk therapy takes place in the non-drug sessions. The extent to which talk therapy actually occurs during the drug experience is minimal, just like psilocybin and MDMA. Um, With psilocybin and MDMA, much of the time under the experience of the drug, the patient is encouraged to just be in silent inner reflection. With the drug experience with minimal talking. And it, it'll be the same with ketamine. Although, what's quite interesting about ketamine is it's very dose dependent. Um, obviously, at the very higher doses in which uh, a full dissociative experience is induced, there will be no meaningful conversation. But at the lower, what you might call psycholytic doses, then some degree of talk therapy during the drug experience may be possible. One of the things that we, we're very keen to do as part of the course is that the doses over those four sessions can be very flexible and vary. And we want the patient to be at the center of their care plan. So it's every patient doesn't get an off-the-shelf treatment. It's a very collaborative process in a relationship between the patient and the therapist as to what dose to use at which session, according to their clinical response and their desire. Um, Some patients may not need any Very high dose dissociative doses. Um, Some may need four high dose dissociative doses. Some may have a high dose one week and then drop down a notch for the next one. And others may do it in the other direction. So, the important thing here is the flexibility of that regime, which is both the right thing to do clinically based on clinical response, but it is also very good because it empowers the patient to have a sense of ownership over their care plan.
0: Actually, I started ketamine therapy since last October. In Berlin. And um, it's fascinating. Because I wanted to go to a second psilocybin treatment after six months. And then again, like you say, one couldn't travel and there are no retreats. And so I had to work on some things. And I went here. To a practice who actually does the IV treatment also with the therapist. It's very suitable in your daily life. I know it sounds weird, but it's just like this one day a week where you just go in late afternoon and then you go home, but you don't have to check out for like three days and just spend the weekend in a mushroom retreat or something. So, but also I find it interesting how you rather start to communicate with your subconsciousness in a very different way than just having this one high dose somewhere. And then months later, kind of, of course, you integrate. But it's super interesting if you have like a weekly treatment with this, how you really start to communicate with yourself in a totally different way, and which I never expected because I basically did it because there was no other option right now.
1: Do you also
0: with that um, and have non-drug sessions with the psychotherapist? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I would come in, let's say, on a Tuesday with an IV treatment for an hour. And I have this dose of 0.5, 0.6, sorry. And we we keep with this dosage because for me, it seems to work very well, not higher and not lower. And then the day after we do like an hour integration. And then we do this like six times, like six weeks. And then there's a break of, I think it's like another six weeks break. And then now I'm on the second round, basically with another six weeks. And in the first treatment, the first six uh, sessions, it was like a little bit of a lower dose where I was talking. And then in the second section, basically, or the next round of six treatments, so I didn't talk and the therapist kind of almost like guided me through almost like a little hypnosis, you could say. But we talked about the topics before that we would address so it's, it's kind of two different variations, you could say that, um, that we tried. So, but it's really like such a very important support system that you actually have like on your side where you don't have to wait like, oh, and next year in March, I'm going to go back to, I don't know, like, for example, to a psilocybin experience and then take this and work on that. So I think it's very suitable for let's say as a treatment for a daily life, like a regular life where you don't have to check out, you know, with other psychedelics sometimes even LSD. I feel it, I did a guided session once and I thought that like, it took me 3 days to really kind of come back to a regular yeah, situation. Yeah. So
1: it's quite interesting you know when we talk about the differences and yeah. the similarities between the different psychedelics. Um in my opinion the similarities between mdma psilocybin and ketamine are greater than their differences now i'm you know sufficiently experienced to not be so naive as to suggest they're all the same of course they're not they're they're hugely different subjective drug experiences but when we are combining them with psychotherapy for clinical patients i think the similarities are greater than the differences they all mm-hmm. induce an altered state of consciousness they are all useful tools when combined with psychotherapy, to provide a platform of emotional containment and support, which allows patients to access parts of themselves and their unconscious that so they wouldn't normally go to. And they all require the skills of the therapist and the relationship between the therapist and the patient for that platform to feel safe and containing and warm and accepting and non-judgmental and So the similarities between those three compounds are great. Now, of course, each of those different drugs has its own effects as well. MDMA has this particular heart-opening aspect, this positive affect, this experience of feeling a sense of Mm -hmm. empathy for oneself and other people, this ability to undo the fear response and reflect upon painful past memories that normally you would avoid because that fear response that the amygdala is switched off. Um, so, MDMA has that particularly. Psilocybin has the effect of um, a, certainly at high doses, a profound psychospiritual experience, um, ego dissolution, total loss of sense of self. And that, when combined with psychotherapy, really allows a patient to completely radically overhaul their entire network of rigid narratives and to look at their life in a new way. And to I like to think of it as rebooting or defragging the consciousness and then building it up in a new way with the harmful maladaptive parts removed, so psilocybin does that, and ketamine again, the uniquely um, well, I think the word weird or strange or peculiar are quite good words to describe the ketamine experience. It's this sense of increased mental flexibility, again, a bit like psilocybin, all of the previous rigid possibilities and narratives of self and world are broken down and that leaves you with a sort of open book with which to then build up new approaches to look at things so all of those three drugs are different and we know that from our recreational use of these those people who use these drugs Um, but in the psychotherapeutic context their similarities are greater in my opinion you know i think that as we move forward in psychedelic clinical work um we're going to see a huge broadening of the uses of these different compounds at the moment things are being sort of things are falling into pigeonholes right. you know depression is being treated with ketamine depression is being treated with psilocybin mdma is being you know pigeonholed towards ptsd and trauma and psilocybin for addictions and this sort of thing but you know i'm very keen to expand that that's why we did the BEMA study, the world's first MDMA study for addictions. We were the first people to go against their grain there and move away from PTSD. There was one study in social anxiety disorder in autism. But other than that, you know, 99% of the work's been MAPS's MDMA PTSD work. So I think that the one way I look at this, Anne, is if we think of psychedelics, all of the psychedelics, ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, as non-specific adjuncts to the psychotherapy, then what we're saying is that any psychiatric condition that responds to psychotherapy, which is every psychiatric condition, you know, psychotherapy is in every single psychiatric indication, from schizophrenia to personality disorders to anxiety disorders to depression to um, addictions. All of these psychiatric indications have some form of psychotherapy. And in my opinion, if we look at psychedelics, all of them as non-specific adjuncts, then that means psychedelic, wherever there's a condition in psychiatry that responds to psychotherapy, in my opinion, it would respond even better to psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So I think we're going to see over the next 5, 10, 15 years, a huge broadening of um, the different psychedelics across all psychiatric indications. We're going to see MDMA for obesity, psilocybin for anorexia, ketamine for addictions. You know, We're going to see all of the different compounds used in all of the psychiatric indications And I think that's a good thing.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, how do you think, I mean, this is also a big question since in a lot of universities, these studies are starting. I mean, like obviously Imperial College was ahead of things already for a while. And now in um, Charité here in Berlin, the first psilocybin study is starting in a couple of weeks. So how do you think this will, let's say, disrupt the psychiatry?
1: Well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, everyone's talking about this psychedelic renaissance, which is really interesting for me because that was the name of my book, like over ten years ago.
0: Oh wow! Oh, everyone's okay.
1: using the term. I wish I, I wish they credited my book a bit more. Um, we, can I used that. That
0: term, we can do that. We can
1: do that. I used that term <laughs> over ten years ago when I wrote that book.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think
1: you're quite right. We are not just on the cusp of a psychedelic revolution. I think psychedelics are pushing forward a whole new paradigm for psychiatry itself. I think. The old concept of maintenance therapies with SSRIs, drugs you have to take every day, day in, day out for weeks, months, decades, is becoming increasingly old-fashioned. It doesn't work, it's not safe, it's not effective, and you are stuck in it for life Mm -hmm. because all you're doing is papering over the cracks with symptom control. What you're not doing is getting to the heart of the problem with effective psychotherapy to treat it from the inside out and get better and not need drugs so psychedelic therapy it's the antithesis of current pharmacology in psychiatry the idea that you can take this drug once or twice or three times and then be better for life cured the cure word is not a word we even use much in psychiatry we've become yeah it's true to, we've become used to being palliative care doctors and just getting alongside our patients for life and patching them up and papering over the cracks, I believe we can do better. I believe psychiatry needs to rebrand itself as a profession that can get people better, discharge them, and not have them darken our doors anymore. Why can't we be like the orthopedic surgeons? Why can't we mend that broken ankle, discharge the patient, and never see them again? Well, psychiatry's painted itself into this corner where we almost don't believe in our own abilities. So we need to change the entire approach to mental illness. The psychedelics are the best, most innovative and effective treatments in psychopharmacology that we've had for the last 75 years. They are allowing us to really rewrite the way we do psychiatry. Patients are wanting this. Patient power is pushing this forward. It's a very, very sad state of affairs, the poor clinical outcomes for mental health issues. Um, No other branch of medicine would stand for those kind of outcomes that we do in psychiatry. We should be doing better after 100 years of modern psychiatry. And the psychedelics are finally offering us an opportunity to cure people once and for all, get them off medication, get them better, get them back into functioning, and not be long-term, lifelong psychiatric patients, which is what the current treatments tend to do.
0: Mm -hmm. It almost seems like, I mean... I know some people who still like exactly how you describe not even in, in their 40s and take antidepressants and go in and out of psychiatry, although they have families and a job. So it still doesn't change their life for the better. They still have to go back and forth. So and some of these people, I think it's interesting, they're almost asking themselves who they actually would be without the story of the person who takes antidepressants in the meantime. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like psychiatry would actually tell them subconsciously, well, you are this person who comes here in and out and this will go on, like you say, for the rest of your life. So it's almost like people lose their idea of who they would be without antidepressants. Is this something you experience also?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's true. It's partly the way the system is set up at the moment is people adopt the psychiatric patient identity you know you ask someone what do you do oh i have depression that's, what like, they that's how they define themselves right and and the daily maintenance medications reinforce that yeah i yeah. have depression and i have to keep taking this little pill every day to hold it at bay and if i stop the depression will win over and that does foster a sense of dependence upon the service and dependence upon the psychiatric label you know if you break your ankle and then it's mended you then don't define yourself for the rest of your life as, oh, I'm a person who had a broken ankle 30 years ago. (laughs) But we do that with mental health (laughs) stuff. Oh, I was given a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of depression 30 years ago, and it's now Mm -hmm. who I am. Why can't we mend that broken ankle like we do in in orthopedic surgery? Why can't we do that with mental illness? Why Mm -hmm. can't we have people who say, oh, yeah, I had depression 30 years ago. I had it treated, and now it's not part of my life. So safe, effective treatments that work and get the patient better and back to full functioning are what we need. And I do think that psychedelics offer us that opportunity.
0: Mm -hmm. And what are your most effective strategies to, let's say, bring this topic into the mainstream, which we know is kind of sometimes one has to be very careful that it doesn't land in the wrong Hands or understanding, and that it's maybe not too hippyish for some people, for the taste of some people, or over spiritualized um, in a way that people will think it's just another way of doing yoga, for example. So, you know what I mean? It's kind of an interesting moment where there's a new language around this that is just yeah. developed as what we do here, for example.
1: It's a really good point, and I think the whole psychedelic field is in a strange place at the moment. How do we move it forward? We, we can only move this forward and make this accessible to more people in public health by jumping through the hoops that are required for regulatory drug development. There's no, there's no shortcuts. Um, the FDA, the EMA, the MHRA, these agencies, they do not think, they do not see psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, MDMA as any different from penicillin or paracetamol. And actually... In some ways, they're not. They're drugs. They're drugs. They have to go through the same regulatory hoops as any other drug. And in some ways, although these drugs have with them, the psychedelics, a fascinating backstory and history of indigenous use and recreational use and all the beautiful, colorful music, art, literature, politics and culture and ceremonial use, it's irrelevant as far as the agencies are concerned. Utterly irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And we have to go through the same regulatory hoops that you would for any other drug. You cannot get away from that. And I think this, I think a lot of the, some elements within the psychedelic community that just don't get this. They're stuck on, don't take away our sacred molecules. You know, we don't want corporatization. We don't want medicalization. They'll say this and they'll say, You know, you doctors are going to make it all exclusive. I think that's absurd. The current situation that's exclusive.
0: That's absurd. If you've
1: got five grand and you can afford to fly down to Peru and have ayahuasca, lucky you. Or go off to someone's yurt and pay a grand to take mushrooms in a ceremony. Lucky you. The vast majority of people... Cannot, ought not, and will not break the law in that way. They want to go to their family doctor and be prescribed a medicine that's approved by regulatory agencies. And the only way to do this is to jump through the same hoops as any other drug development. So I think there's a lot of naivety in the psychedelic community who are saying, you know, you shouldn't have to work with pharma and banks and corporations. We should just all be free to take mushrooms. Don't take away our sacred molecules. Well, if we follow that path, as we have for the last 50 years, they're just going to remain sacredly illegal
0: sacredly forever. Illegal. Yeah, we, have to,
1: we have to do these things. We have to work with corporations, banks, pharma, because that's how you develop drugs and get them into the public healthcare system. There is no way around that. And... So, a lot of the criticism of the over medicalization of psychedelics is coming from people who just simply don't understand the realities of drug development. They think you should be able to march into 10 Downing Street and say, It's my right to get high, man. Just let me take them. It doesn't work, man. We've had 50 years to try that (laughs) cognitive liberty argument. It's my right (laughs) to get high, and it's gone absolutely nowhere. We have to treat these as medical drugs. That have to go through all of the approvals, and then we get them into the public health care and then and this is the paradox, they become more accessible. The medicalization of psychedelics increases their accessibility, not decreases them. so I think there 's a lot of voices, actually not that many, there are some loud voices within the psychedelic community who just don 't get this, and they 're highly critical of the medicalization. But actually, I think the paradox is it's almost as if they want them to remain exclusive. They don't want everyone to have them. And so they criticize the doctors for doing what they're doing. But as a doctor, I want these paid... These drugs are too good to stay where they are. They're too good and too effective and too many people can benefit from them. We have to do it in this way. And that means working with corporations and pharmaceutical industries and banks and big money and governments because that's how you get drugs developed. The rules are no different to any other drug development. And we've got to jump through the hoops.
0: We had this conversation yesterday and this expression of agnostic molecules came up. And I mean, that's a really good expression, I think, because what you actually say is something that especially, I mean, even let's say, even if you could afford to go to a spiritual surrounding, do this in a classic um indigenous context and you would, could stay there for, um, I don't know, a week and take a week off from your job and who knows what. But I mean, even then, besides the money aspect, there's also this aspect that it's almost like you're enforced to experience spirituality. Do you know what I mean? And some people don't. Some people just... Have other experiences or just have horrible experiences, but there seems to be like a very clear idea what spiritual means right now. And if you don't have that experience, you probably rather feel worse <laughs> because you say, Well, I didn't feel spiritual. Something's wrong with me. Then I had this conversation with Zach Kamenetz. The- the a Jewish psychedelic rabbi. And he said like in his first experience with psilocybin, he had the whole, the full spectrum of spiritual experience. Da, da, da. And then six months later in, in his second, he just had just a blank experience. No gods, <laughs> no kind of extreme pictures, just a void. And he was terrified because he didn't have the same thing he had in the first experience. So, and I think it's a very interesting topic to kind of um free people from this idea of a very specific, maybe also Westernized spirituality that has been created in Alaska. If you go on Instagram, you see like all these spiritual pictures from people who are enlightened after 10 years <laughs> um, of doing yoga. So I think it's a very interesting topic that is um developing and, it's really hard to talk to some people about in a space, I feel.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are many stereotypes associated with the use of these drugs. And, you know, in contrast to what I said earlier about these being seen by the regulatory authorities as the same as other drugs, we know they're not the same. We know that the unique experiences that are felt subjectively are psychedelic and they're not the same as paracetamol and penicillin. We have to treat them uniquely. We have to treat them the same as those drugs when it comes to regulatory approval, but when it comes to the actual experience and the clinical value, of course they are unique. They are psychedelic. And we have to find a language to use this in a clinical way. And you're quite right. Not everyone wants to describe this as spiritual. And we need to be careful not to fall into these stereotypes. Um, You don't have to talk about ancient ancestors and God and spirituality, you can put it into a language of self-realisation that doesn't need to be spiritual. One way or the other, the subjective experience is powerful and life-changing and uniquely personal. So the the choice of the language is really important. And I completely agree with you, Anne, that if a patient comes in with a preconceived expectation to glimpse the numinous and commune with God, and then they don't then that could be a difficulty for them and not meet their expectations and then therefore may not be as clinically effective as it could be. So we, the, the important thing is that it's an open book and the patient's experience is their experience. And that's one of the problems of the, maybe the sort of the more hippie community. The really fascinating thing about the hippie community that is, is critical perhaps of the medicalization is they accuse the doctors and the scientists of being dogmatic. Actually, the amount of dogma that sits within the psychedelic community is extraordinary. You know, pseudoscience dogma of chakras and energy levels and all of these things that, you know, it has to be like this, you know. So you're quite right. The experience is personal and the language is essential. And the other thing about the choice of language is when it comes to regulatory approval, we need to use language that the regulators speak. Exactly. So, for example, when we were designing our MDMA protocol, And we wanted to describe the subjective experience. I remember talking to one person and they said, you know, you must describe it as a opening of the heart chakra. And it's like, no, that, you know, we would not get that past ethics. So, So we described it as a strongly felt positive mood, you know? So you need to use the language. You need to, because this is the other thing interesting we should not be expecting patients to fit into our preconceived agenda patients bring their own agenda you know why when we do psychedelic studies do we have pictures of the buddha and sitar music playing and incense sticks why those things there's no need for those things those stereotypical 60s eastern mysticism most of my patients are hard Tracksuit wearing, lager drinking, cigarette smoking, tattooed, shaven headed, deeply broken people, okay? Deeply broken people who need psychedelics. Mm. And they would run a mile if I talked to them about energy levels and chakras and put sitar music on. Why do we have those stereotypes? We should be meeting the patients where they are. Why a picture of the Buddha on the wall? Maybe they want a picture of Man United on the wall or a picture of Britney Spears on the wall. Why not? <laughs> yeah. If those are our patients' power objects, that's a really then good that's question. that's a we really should good... be providing. We shouldn't be expecting them to subscribe to a preconceived hippie genre of dolphins and jaguars if that's not their world. We need to meet them where they are, and they need to guide us in what are their power objects, because otherwise it's not going to increase accessibility. It's going to scare people off. If people think they have to subscribe to this hippie stereotype in order to access the drugs, it's going to reduce accessibility. Now, at the same time, in contrast to all that, nor do we need to m- make sure that we all wear white coats and carry clipboards and see people in stark, white-walled NHS settings. We need, there's, there's a lot we can learn from the history of psychedelics and the underground and non-clinical uses thus far. And, and we do. And all psychedelic protocols have these features. They have the sense of a warm environment, a comforting, open environment, which is undisturbed and peaceful and the patient feels contained and held. But we mustn't fall into the trap of if we don't follow the hippie genre, then we're somehow not doing it correctly. We need to be more broad than that and meet patients where they are.
0: I mean, I think there's even... I think in London, somebody has already created this, but it seems that there needs to be like, almost like an own new architecture and an own new kind of style, you could almost say. That is, uh, I mean, for example, Field Trip, you know, the Kettleman, clinics, they always describe like if you read in magazines about them, it's like a mixture like Soho house meeting the wing, which is like a, a, a kind of a club in in New York. So but still, it's not really figured out yet. I feel how this specifically could look like I think it needs like a, a, a new generation of architects and designers maybe to really create like a new visual language around this sometimes.
1: Yeah. I mean, what we're doing at Awaken is we're going for a much more neutral approach. You know, we, we don't want to have rainbow colors and pictures mm-hmm. of dolphins and we have a warm environment, which is comforting and welcoming, but relatively neutral because it's a blank canvas on which the patient can project their unique idiosyncratic psychedelic experience, which doesn't push them down a particular dogmatic avenue but rather allows them to express themselves in their own terms. And I think that's really important. And, you know, there's such a broad range and it just remains to be seen how this is going to work for patients. And you're quite right, this is still in in an embryological stage of development and it's going to look different five years from now and 10 years from now. I think obviously we must not lose the heart of the psychedelic experience, but nor will we. I mean, in some ways, this is, this is the weird paradox. People may accuse me of being overly medical and therefore closed. Actually, it's because I understand psychedelics so well and have so much trust in their therapeutic ability that I believe we can look at new ways of using them. It's almost as if the people who are saying don't touch our sacred molecules don't have as much faith in these sacred molecules as me. I believe we can alter and change and tweak these sacred molecules, and they're still going to be amazing. So it's almost as if having the courage to be creative and do things in a new way is flattering these chemicals as to just how powerful they are. We don't have to stay in the old way. We can develop new ways of using them. And this also includes developing new molecules themselves. You know, there's been criticism of the groups that have tweaked psychedelic molecules and taken out the hallucinogenic properties etc to me i'm not critical of that right. i think that's superb yep. creative psychopharmacology why not you know why not see what we can do with these molecules why not see if by taking out the psychedelic aspect of lsd and still find it has some therapeutic potential then that's great that increases accessibility to a whole new group of patients that could benefit and the the, the irony of this is these people who are critical of that approach, they venerate the likes of Sasha Shulgin. What did Sasha do for his entire life but tweak psychedelic molecules? He created hundreds of new psychedelic molecules, half of them with zero psychedelic activity, but he was fascinated in what he could do. So this is the paradox. These people often venerate Sasha, so, rightly so, superb chemist, superb man, and superb pioneer of psychedelics, mm-hmm. but he wasn't scared of tweaking psychedelic molecules. True. So mm. you know, this is, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy and naivety in people who are critical of the medicalization of psychedelics. You know, We are not closing the door. We are broadening and opening the door by doing what we're doing because the old ways are not going away. If you hate medicalization of psychedelics and you just want to wander over the fields and pick mushrooms and sit on the beach, you can still do that. (laughs) No one's taking away your LSD. No one's (laughs) taking away your mushrooms. All of that, all the raves, all the festivals, they ain't going anywhere. They're still there for the people who want to sit in drum circles and ceremonies. They're not going anywhere. They're more likely to be enhanced, to be honest. But all we're doing is adding the clinic's and the medics and the doctors to the mix as well. So it's not either or, it's both and.
0: I mean, it's interesting what you say, because recently on a Clubhouse talk, somebody, I think a a scientist also brought this up, that let's say if you would only accept a psychedelic experience that is painful and difficult, um, that that's a rather puritanical idea also about this, which is also an, an interesting thought that... Why does it have to be, I mean, Germans, uh, really, I feel like this country has a very strong tradition and like, it has to kind of be really bad and hurt. And then you come out of this as relieved and, but it can't be a relief without the pain, for example, which is a super puritanical idea. So, and, um, thank you for being on the show. Um, another time, it was great. Very interesting, Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great to
1: chat. Um, Thank you. These are really interesting topics, and it's fascinating to see how it's changing and how fast it's changing. And, you know, I think what we've talked about today is really important. To what extent do we hold on to the old ways or to what extent do we embrace the new? Yeah. My stance on this is by embracing the new, we're not going to lose the old. Very good. You know, like I said, if you still want to just take ecstasy at raves, take ketamine at PsyChance dances and pick mushrooms and sit in a field. You can still do that. No one's taking that away. But what we're doing is we're adding medical treatments to the mix as well. And that's what we need to hold on to.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Have a good day. Talk to you soon. Nice to see to see you. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse of course. There's also a New Health Club Now. Or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.